Book fifteen, part one of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume five, by Francois René de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Texera de Matos. Book fifteen, part one. The three parties were beginning to take shape and to act against one another. The deputies, who were in favour of a monarchy, as represented by the elder branch, were the strongest, legally. They rallied to themselves all that tended towards order, but morally they were the weakest. They hesitated. They did not speak out. It was becoming manifest, from the turgivization of the court, that they would fall into the usurpation rather than see themselves swallowed up by the Republic. And the latter had a placard posted on the wall, saying, France is free. She grants the provisional government the right only of consulting her, until the time when she shall have expressed her will by new elections. No more royalty. The executive power entrusted to a temporary president, mediate or immediate cooperation of all the citizens in the election of deputies, liberty of worship. This placard summed up the only just things in the republican opinion. A new assembly of deputies would have decided, if it was well or ill, to give way to that wish of no more royalty. Each would have pleaded his cause, and the election of a government of whatever kind by a national congress would have borne the character of legality. On another republican poster of the same date, 30th July, one read in large letters, No more Bourbons, all is one, greatness, repose, public prosperity, liberty. Lastly appeared an address to Messieurs, the members of the municipal commission forming a provisional government. It demanded that no proclamation be issued naming a ruler so long as the form itself of the government cannot yet be decided, that the provisional government remain in power until the wish of the majority of Frenchmen be known, any other measure being ill-timed and culpable. This address, emanating from the members of a commission appointed by a large number of citizens of different wards in Paris, was signed by Messieurs Chevalier as chairman, Chela, Test, Le Pelletier, Guinard, Henri, Cochalemaire, etc., in this popular assembly, they proposed to offer the presidency of the Republic by acclamation to Monsieur de Lafayette. They relied upon the principles which the Chamber of Representatives of 1815 had proclaimed when separating. Various printers refused to publish these proclamations, saying that they had been forbidden to do so by Monsieur le Duc de Broglie. The Republic was casting the throne of Charles X to the ground, and it feared the prohibitions of Monsieur de Broglie, who had no character of any kind. I have told you how, during the night between the 29th and 30th of July, Monsieur Lafitte, with Monsieur Thiers and Monsieur Minier, had made every preparation to draw the eyes of the public on Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans. On the 30th appeared proclamations and addresses, the fruit of this cabal, with Let us avoid the Republic for their burden. Next came the feats of arms of Jemap and Valmy, and the people was assured that Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans was not a Capet, but a Valois. And meanwhile Monsieur Thiers, sent by Monsieur Lafitte, was ambling towards Nuit with Monsieur Scheffer. H.R.H. was not there. Great wordy contest between Mademoiselle d'Orléans and Monsieur Thiers. It was agreed that they should write to Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans to persuade him to rally to the revolution. Monsieur Thiers himself wrote a note to the prince, and Madame d'Adelaide promised to proceed her family to Paris. Orleanism had made progress, and on the evening of that same day, the question had been raised among the deputies of conferring the powers of lieutenant-general on Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans. Monsieur de Sucy, with the Saint-Cloud ordinances, had met with an even more indifferent reception at the Hôtel de Ville than in the Chamber of Deputies. Armed with a receipt from Monsieur de Lafayette, he returned to Monsieur de Mortemar, who exclaimed, 
You have done more than saved my life, you have saved my honour. The Municipal Commission issued a proclamation in which it declared that the crimes of his, Charles X's, power were ended, and that the people would have a government which should owe its origin to them, the people, an ambiguous phrase which you were free to interpret as you pleased. Messieurs Lafitte and Perrier did not sign this document. Monsieur de Lafayette, alarmed a little late in the day, at the idea of the Orleanist royalty, sent Monsieur Odilon Barreau to the Chamber of Deputies to announce that the people, the authors of the Revolution of July, did not mean to end it by a simple change of persons, and that the blood that had been shed was well worth a few liberties. There was talk of a proclamation of the deputies to invite H.R.H. the Duc d'Orléans to come to the capital. After some communications with the Hôtel de Ville, this plan of a proclamation was demolished. Nevertheless, it led to the formation of a sort of deputation of twelve members, who were to go to the Lord of Nuit to offer him that lieutenant-generalship for which they had not been able to make way in a proclamation. In the evening, the Grand Refendery assembled the peers in his apartments. His letter, through negligence or policy, reached me too late. I hurried to hasten to the meeting. They opened the gate of the Allée de l'Observatoire for me. I crossed the Luxembourg Garden. When I reached the palace, I found no one there. I made my way back past the flower-beds, my eyes fixed on the moon. I regretted the seas and the mountains above which she had appeared to me, the forests in whose tops, herself vanishing in silence, she had seemed to repeat to me the maxim of Epicurus, Conceal thy life. I have left the troops falling back upon St. Cloud on the evening of the twenty-ninth. The citizens of Chaillot and Passy attacked them, killing a captain of carabineers and two officers, and wounding some ten soldiers. Captain Lemotha of the guards was struck by a bullet fired by a child whom he had been pleased to spare. This captain had given in his resignation at the time of the ordinances, but, seeing that they were fighting on the 27th, he returned to his regiment to share the dangers of his comrades. Never, to the glory of France, was there a finer battle waged in the parties opposed between liberty and honour. Children, always fearless, because they know nothing of danger, played a sad part in the work of the three days. Sheltered behind their weakness, they fired point-blank at officers who would have thought themselves dishonoured in beating them back. Modern arms placed death at the disposal of the feeblest hand. Ugly, wizened little monkeys, libertines before they have the power of being so, cruel and perverse, these little heroes of the three days gave themselves up to assassination with all the abandonment of innocence. Let us beware lest, by imprudent praises, we give birth to the emulation of evil. The children of Sparta used to go helot hunting. Monsieur le Dauphin received the soldiers at the gate of the village of Boulogne in the wood, and then returned to St. Cloud. St. Cloud was guarded by the four companies of the bodyguards. The battalion of the pupils of Saint-Cyr had arrived. In rivalry, and in contrast with the polytechnic school, they had embraced the royal cause. The attenuated troops, returning from a three days' battle, by their wounds and dilapidated appearance, caused only amazement to the titled, gilded, and well-fed flunkies who dined at the royal table. No one thought of cutting the telegraphic lines. Couriers, travellers, mail-coaches, diligences, passed freely along the road, with the tricolor flag, which urged the villagers to revolt as it passed through them. Seduction by means of money and women was commencing. The proclamations of the Commune of Paris were hawked to and fro. The king and court still refused to be persuaded that they were in danger. In order to prove that they despised the doings of a few mutinous burgesses, and that there was no revolution, they let everything go. God's finger is seen in all this. At nightfall on the 30th of July, at nearly the same hour when the commission of the deputies left for Nuit, an adjutant announced to the troops that the ordinances were repealed. The soldiers shouted, Long live the king, and resumed their gaiety at the bivouac. But this announcement made by the adjutant, sent by the Duc de Raguse, had not been communicated to the Dauphin, who was a great lover of discipline, and flew into a rage. The king said to the marshal, The Dauphin is displeased. Go and have your explanation with him. 
The marshal did not find the Dauphin in his own apartments, and waited for him in the billiard-room with the Duc de Guiche and the Duc de Ventadour, the prince's aide-de-camp. The Dauphin entered. At sight of the marshal he flushed to his eyes, crossed his antechamber with those singular long strides of his, reached his drawing-room, and said to the marshal, Come in. The door closed behind them. A great noise was heard. Their voices were raised more and more. The Duc de Ventadour grew anxious and opened the door. The marshal came out, pursued by the Dauphin, who called him a double traitor. Give up your sword! Give up your sword! he cried, and flinging himself upon him, tore his sword from him. Monsieur de la Rue, the marshal's aide-de-camp, tried to throw himself between him and the Dauphin, and was held back by Monsieur de Montgascon. The prince endeavoured to break the marshal's sword, and in so doing cut his hands. He cried, Help! Guards! Seize him! The bodyguards rushed in. If the marshal had not made a movement of the head, their bayonets would have struck him in the face. The Duc de Raguse was placed under arrest in his room. The king arranged this affair as best he could. It was the more deplorable, as neither of the actors inspired any great interest. When the son of the Balafre slew Saint-Paul, the marshal of the League, men recognised in this sword-stroke the pride and blood of the Guises. But supposing even that Monsieur le Dauphin, a mightier lord than a prince of Lorraine, had cut down Marshal Marmont, what would that have mattered? If the marshal had killed Monsieur le Dauphin, it would only have been a little more singular. We should see Caesar, the descendant of Venus, and Brutus, the heir of Junius, pass through the streets without looking at them. Nothing is great today, because nothing is high. That is how at San Cloud the last hour of the monarchy was spent that pale monarchy, disfigured and blood-stained, resembled the portrait which Dufresne makes for us of a great personage dying. His eyes were wan and sunk, his lower jaw, covered only with a little skin, seemed to have disappeared, his beard was bristling, his colour yellow, his glance slow, his breath bated. Already from his mouth issued no longer human words, but oracles. Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans had, throughout his life, entertained for the throne the inclination that every high-born soul feels for power. This inclination is modified, according to the possessor's character, impetuous and aspiring, or slack and fawning, imprudent, open, declared in the former, circumspect, hidden, shamefaced in the latter. One, in order to elevate himself, is capable of any crime, the other, in order to rise, can descend to any meanness. Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans belonged to this latter class of ambitious men. Follow this prince in his career. He never says and never does anything completely. He always leaves a door open for escape. During the Restoration he flattered the court and encouraged liberal opinion. Nuit became the meeting-place of discontent and the discontented. They sighed, they pressed each other's hands with eyes raised to heaven but they did not utter a word of enough significance to be reported in high places. When a member of the opposition died, a carriage was sent to the funeral, but the carriage was empty. The livery is admitted to every door and every graveside. If, at the time of my disgrace at court, I found myself at the Tuileries on Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans' path, he went past, taking care to bow to the right in such a manner that, I being on the left, he turned his shoulder to me. That would be remarked, and would do good. Was Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans aware beforehand of the ordinances of July? Was he told of them by a person who held Monsieur Ouvrard's secret? What did he think of them? What were his hopes and fears? Did he conceive a plan? Did he urge Monsieur Lafitte to act as he did act, or did he let Monsieur Lafitte act as he pleased? To judge from Louis-Philippe's character, we must presume that he took no resolve, and that his political timidity, taking refuge in his falseness, awaited events as the spider awaits the gnat which will be taken in its web. He allowed the moment to conspire. He himself conspired only by his wishes, of which it is probable that he was afraid. There were two courses open to Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans. The first and the more honourable was to hasten to St. Cloud, to interpose himself between Charles X and the people, in order to save the crown of the one and the liberty of the other. The second consisted in flinging himself on the barricades, with a tricolour flag in his hand, 
and placing himself at the head of the movement of the world. Philip had to choose between the honest man and the great man. He preferred to pilfer the crown from the king and liberty from the people. During the confusion and misfortune of a fire, a pickpocket artfully purloins the most valuable objects from the burning palace, without heeding the cries of a child which the flames have surprised in its cradle. The rich prey once seized, plenty of hounds were there for the distribution of the quarry. Then came all those old corruptions of the preceding systems, those receivers of stolen goods, filthy, half-crushed toads, that have been walked upon a hundred times, and that live, all flattened out as they are. And yet those are the men of whom one boasts, whose ability one exalts. Milton thought otherwise when he wrote this passage in a sublime letter. If ever God poured a strong love for moral beauty in a man's breast, he did so in mine. Wherever I meet a man despising the false esteem of the vulgar, daring to aspire by his opinions, his language, and his conduct, to the greatest excellence which the lofty wisdom of the ages has taught us, I become united to that man by a sort of necessary attachment. There is no power in heaven or upon earth which can prevent me from contemplating with respect and fondness those who have attained the summit of dignity and virtue. The blind court of Charles X never knew where it stood or with whom it had to do. It might have ordered Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans to St. Cloud, and it is probable that, at the first moment, he would have obeyed. It might have had him kidnapped at Nuit, on the very day of the ordinances. It took neither course. On receipt of advices which Madame de Bondy brought him, at Nuit, in the night of Tuesday the 27th, Louis-Philippe rose at three o'clock in the morning, and withdrew to a place known only to his family. He had the double fear of being touched by the insurrection in Paris, and of being arrested by a captain of the guards. He therefore went to the Rainy, there in solitude to listen to the distant gunshots of the Battle of the Louvre, as I had listened under a tree to those of the Battle of Waterloo. The feelings which doubtless stirred the Prince must have had very little in common with those which oppressed me in the plains of Ghent. I have told you how, on the morning of the 30th of July, Monsieur Thiers failed to find the Duc d'Orléans at Nuit, but Madame la Duchesse d'Orléans sent to fetch H.R.H. The Comte Anatole de Montesquieu was charged with a message. On arriving at the Rainy, Monsieur de Montesquieu had all the difficulty in the world to decide Louis-Philippe to return to Nuit, there to await the deputation from the Chamber of Deputies. At last, persuaded by the Duchesse d'Orléans' lord-in-waiting, Louis-Philippe stepped into his carriage. Monsieur de Montesquieu started in advance. At first he went pretty fast, but when he looked back he saw H.R.H.'s calash stop and drive back again towards the Rainy. Monsieur de Montesquieu returned at full speed and entreated the future majesty, who was hastening to conceal himself in the desert, like the illustrious Christians who used to flee from the burdensome dignity of the episcopate. The faithful servant obtained a last unhappy victory. On the evening of the 30th, the deputation of twelve members of the Chamber of Deputies, which was to offer the lieutenant-generalship of the kingdom to the prince, sent him a message to Nuit. Louis-Philippe received the message at the park gates, read it by torchlight, and at once set out for Paris, accompanied by Messieurs de Bertois, Amis, and Oudard. He wore a tricolor favor in his buttonhole. He was going to carry off an old crown from the Royal Furniture Repository. On his arrival at the Palais Royal, Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans sent his compliments to Monsieur de Lafayette. The deputation of twelve members of the Chamber of Deputies appeared at the Palais Royal. They asked the Prince if he accepted the Lieutenant Generalship of the Kingdom. He made an embarrassed reply. I have come amongst you to show your dangers. I have need of reflection. I must consult various persons. The dispositions of St. Cloud are not at all hostile. The King's presence lays duties upon me. And thus replied Louis-Philippe. He was made to eat his words, as he expected. After withdrawing for half an hour, he reappeared, bearing a proclamation by virtue of which he accepted the functions of Lieutenant-General of the Kingdom. The proclamation ended with this declaration. The Charter will henceforward be a reality. The proclamation was taken to the elective chamber, and received with that fifty-year-old revolutionary enthusiasm. Another proclamation was issued in reply, drawn up by Monsieur Guizot. The deputies returned to the Palais Royal. The prince became affected, accepted afresh, 
and could not help bewailing the deplorable circumstances which forced him to be lieutenant-general of the kingdom stunned by the blows that had been struck at it the republic tried to defend itself but its real head general lafayette had almost abandoned it he delighted in the concert of adoration that reached him from every side he greedily inhaled the perfume of revolution he was enchanted at the idea that he was the arbiter of france that he was able by stamping the earth with his foot to cause a republic or a monarchy to spring up as he pleased he loved to lull himself in the uncertainty which pleases minds that dread conclusions because an instinct warns them that they cease to be anything when the facts are accomplished the other republican leaders had ruined themselves in advance by their several works the praises of the terror had reminded frenchmen of seventeen ninety three and caused them to recoil the re-establishment of the national guard at the same time killed the principle or the power of insurrection in the combatants of july monsieur de lafayette did not perceive that in dreaming of the republic he had armed three millions of fighting men against it be this as it may ashamed of being duped so soon the younger men made some show of resistance they replied by proclamations and posters to the proclamations and posters of the duke d'orleans he was told that if the deputies had so far loathed themselves as to beseech him to accept the lieutenant-generalship of the kingdom the chamber of deputies elected under an aristocratic law had no right to manifest the will of the people it was proved to louis philippe that he was the son of louis philippe joseph that louis philippe joseph was the son of louis philippe that louis philippe was the son of louis who was the son of philip the second the regent that philip the second was the son of philip the first who was the brother of louis the fourteenth therefore louis philippe d'orleans was a bourbon and capet not a valois monsieur lafitte nevertheless continued to look upon him as belonging to the dynasty of charles the ninth and henry the third and said thiers knows all about it later the lointier gathering protested that the nation was in arms to maintain its rights by force the central committee of the twelfth ward declared that the people had not been consulted on the method of its constitution that the chamber of deputies and the chamber of peers holding their powers from charles x had fallen with him and could not in consequence represent the nation that the provisional government must remain in permanence under the presidency of lafayette until a constitution had been discussed and fixed as the fundamental basis of government on the morning of the thirtieth there was a question of proclaiming the republic a few determined men threatened to kill the municipal commission if it did not keep the power in its hands did they not also blame the house of peers they were furious at its audacity the audacity of the house of peers surely this must have been the last outrage and the last injustice which it expected to receive at the hands of public opinion a plan was formed twenty of the most fiery young men were to lie in wait in a little street running into the quai de la ferraille and fire on louis philippe when he went from the palais royal to the hotel de ville they were stopped and told that they would at the same time be killing lafitte pajol and benjamin constant lastly it was proposed to kidnap the duke d'orleans and put him on board ship at cherbourg a strange meeting if charles x and philip had come together again in the same port on the same vessel one dispatched to a foreign shore by the middle class the other by the republicans the duc d'orleans having made up his mind to go to have his title confirmed by the tribunes of the hotel de ville went down into the courtyard of the palais royal surrounded by eighty-nine deputies in caps in round hats in dress coats in frock coats the royal candidate mounted a white horse he was followed by benjamin constant tossed about in a chair by two savoyards messieurs Méchain and viennet covered with dust and perspiration walked between the white horse of the future monarch and the barrow of the gouty deputy quarrelling with the two porters to make them keep the required distance a half-drunken drummer beat the drum at the head of the procession four ushers served as lictors the more zealous deputies bellowed long live the duc d'orleans around the palais royal these cries met with some response but as the troop approached the hotel de ville the spectators became derisive or silent 
Philip threw himself about on his triumphal steed and constantly took shelter beneath the buckler of Monsieur Lafitte, from whom he received a few patronizing words on the way. He smiled to General Gerard, made signs of intelligence to Monsieur Viennet and Monsieur Méchain, and begged the crown of the people, with his hat adorned with a yard of tricolor ribbon, putting out his hand to whosoever on his way was willing to drop an alms into it. The strolling monarchy reached the Place de Grève, where it was greeted with cries of, The Republic for ever! When the royal electoral matter made its way inside the Hôtel de Ville, the postulant was received with more threatening murmurs. A few zealous servants who shouted his name were punched for their pains. He entered the throne room. Here were crowded the wounded and fighters of the three days. A general shout of, No more Bourbons! Long live Lafayette! shook the rafters of the hall. The prince appeared embarrassed. Monsieur Viennet, on behalf of Monsieur Lafitte, read the declaration of the deputies. It was heard in profound silence. The Duc d'Orléans spoke a few words of adhesion. The Monsieur Dubourg said roughly to Philip, You have taken serious engagements. If ever you fail to keep them, we are the people to remind you of them. Whereupon the future king replied with great emotion, Sir, I am an honest man. Monsieur de Lafayette, seeing the growing uncertainty of the assembly, suddenly took it in his head to abdicate the presidency. He handed the Duc d'Orléans a tricolor flag, stepped out on the balcony of the Hôtel de Ville, and embraced the prince before the eyes of the gaping crowd, while the Duke waved the national flag. Lafayette's republican kiss made a king, the curious outcome of the whole career of the hero of the two worlds. And then rub-a-dub-dub! The litter of Benjamin Constant and the white horse of Louis-Philippe went home again, half-hooted, half-blessed, from the political factory on the Grève to the Palais Marchand. That same day, says Monsieur Louis Blanc, and not far from the Hôtel de Ville, a wherry moored at the foot of the morgue and surmounted by a black flag, received corpses which were lowered in barrows. These corpses were piled up in heaps and covered with straw, and the crowd which had gathered along the parapets of the Seine looked on in silence. Speaking of the states of the League and the making of a king, Parma Cayette exclaims, I pray you to picture to yourselves what answer could have made that little goodman, Master Mathieu Delaunay and Monsieur Boucher, curate of Saint-Benoît, and any other of that condition, to one who should have told them that they must be employed to install a king in France to their fancy. True Frenchmen have always held in contempt that form of electing kings, which makes them masters and servants together. Philip had not come to the end of his trials. He had many more hands to shake, many more embraces to receive. He still had to blow very many kisses, to bow very low to the passers-by, to humour the crowd by coming many times on the balcony of the Tuileries to sing the Marseillaise. A certain number of Republicans had met on the morning of the 31st at the office of the National. When they knew that the Duc d'Orléans had been appointed Lieutenant-General of the Kingdom, they wished to know the opinions of the man destined to become king in spite of them. They were taken to the Palais Royal by Monsieur Thiers. There were Messieurs Bastide, Thomas, Joubert, Cavagnac, Marché, de Gousset, and Guinard. The prince at first said many fine things to them about liberty. You are not king yet, retorted Bastide. Listen to the truth. Soon you will have no lack of flatterers. Your father, added Cavagnac, was a regicide like mine and that separates you a little from the others. Followed mutual congratulations on the regicide, accompanied, nevertheless, by a judicious remark from Philip, to the effect that there are things which we should remember in order not to imitate them. Some Republicans were not at the meeting at the National entered. Monsieur Trelat said to Philip, The people is the master. Your functions are provisional. The people must express its wish. Do you consult it, yes or no? Monsieur Thiers interrupted this dangerous speech by tapping Monsieur Thomas on the shoulder and saying, Monseigneur, have we not a fine colonel here? That is true, answered Louis-Philippe. What is he talking about? they exclaimed. Does he take us for a band that has come to sell itself? And on every side rose contradictory phrases. It's a tower of Babel, and that's what they call a citizen king. The Republic? You had better govern with Republicans. And Monsieur Thiers exclaiming, Here's a fine embassy I've undertaken. Then Monsieur de Lafayette came down to the Palais Royal. The citizen was nearly stifled under the embraces of his king. The whole house was ready to die. Men in jackets were at the post of honour, men in caps in the drawing-rooms, men in smocks sat down to table with the princes and princesses. 
in the council chamber there were chairs but no armchairs all spoke who would louis philippe seated between monsieur de lafayette and monsieur lafitte their arms entwined round each other's shoulders beamed expansively with equality and happiness i would have liked to employ more gravity in my description of those scenes which produced a great revolution or to speak more correctly of those scenes by which the transformation of the world will be hastened but i saw them deputies who acted in them could not help showing a certain confusion when they told me how on the thirty first of july they went to forge a king to henry the fourth before he became a catholic men raised objections which did not degrade him and which were measured by the level of the throne itself they told him that st louis had been canonized not at geneva but in rome that if the king were not a catholic he would not hold the first place among the kings of christendom that it was not seemly that the king should pray in one wise and his people in another that the king could not be crowned at rheims nor buried at st denis if he were not a catholic what was the objection raised against philip before his final election men objected that he was not patriot enough to-day when the revolution is consummated men take offence if one dare remind them of what took place at the start they fear to diminish the solidity of the position they have taken up and whosoever does not find in the origin of the incipient fact the gravity of the accomplished fact is a traducer when a dove descended to bring the holy oil to clovis when the long-haired kings were raised upon a buckler when st louis in his premature virtue trembled at his coronation while pronouncing the oath to employ his authority only for the glory of god and the welfare of his people when henry the fourth after his entry into paris went to prostrate himself at notre dame and men saw or thought they saw on his right a beautiful child who defended him and who was taken to be his guardian angel i conceive that the diadem was a sacred thing the oriflamme rested in the tabernacles of heaven but now that a sovereign on a public square with hair cut short and hands tied behind his back has lowered his head beneath the blade to the sound of the drum now that another sovereign surrounded by the rabble has gone to beg votes for his election to the sound of the same drum on another public square who keeps the smallest illusion touching the crown who believes that the soiled and battered monarchy can still impose upon the world what man feeling his heart beat ever so little would swallow power in that cup of shame and disgust which philip emptied at one draught without a qualm european monarchy could have continued its life if in france they had preserved the parent monarchy the daughter of a saint and of a great man but her seed has been dispersed nothing will be born of her again you have seen the monarchy of the greve march dusty and breathless under the tricolor flag in the midst of its insolent friends see now the royalty of rheims retire with measured steps in the midst of its almoners and its guards walking in accordance with the exactest etiquette hearing no word but words of respect revered even by those who detested it the soldier little though he esteemed it died for it the white flag laid upon its bier before being folded away for ever said to the wind salute me i was at ivry i saw turenne die the english knew me at fontenoy i made liberty triumph under washington i have delivered greece and i still wave from the walls of algiers on the thirty-first at daybreak at the very hour when the duc d'orleans after arriving in paris was preparing to accept the lieutenant-generalship the servants at st cloud came to the bivouac on the Sevres bridge saying that they were discharged and that the king had left at half-past three in the morning the soldiers became excited but grew calm again when the dauphin appeared he rode up on horseback as though to carry them with him by one of those phrases which lead the french to death or victory he stopped in front of the ranks stammered a few sentences turned short and went back to the palace it was not courage that failed him but speech the miserable education of our princes of the elder branch since louis quatorze rendered them incapable of supporting a contradiction of expressing themselves like everybody else and of mixing with the rest of mankind meanwhile the heights of sevres and the terraces of bellevue were crowned with men of the people a few musket shots were exchanged the captain commanding the advance guard on the sevres bridge went over to the enemy 
he took a piece of cannon and a part of his soldiers to the bands that had gathered on the pont du jour road then the parisians and the guards agreed that no hostilities should take place until the evacuation of st cloud and of sevres was effected the retiring movement began the swiss were hemmed in by the inhabitants of sevres and flung away their arms although they were almost at once extricated by the lancers whose lieutenant-colonel was wounded the troops passed through versailles where the national guard had been on duty since the preceding day with la roche jacqueline's grenadiers the first under the tricolor the second with the white cockade madame la dauphine arrived from vichy and joined the royal family at trianon the favourite residence of marie antoinette at trianon monsieur de polignac took leave of his master it has been said that madame la dauphine was opposed to the ordinances the only way to judge kings correctly is to consider them in their essence the plebeian will always be on the side of liberty the prince will always lean towards power we must ascribe this to them as neither a crime nor a merit it is their nature madame la dauphine would probably have wished that the ordinances had appeared at a more opportune moment after better precautions had been taken to ensure their success but in reality they pleased her and were bound to please her madame la duchesse de berry was delighted with them those two princesses believed that the royalty once its own master would be free from the shackles which representative government fastens to the sovereign's feet one is astonished in the events of july not to meet with the diplomatic body which was only too much consulted by the court and which interfered too much in our business there was twice a question of the foreign ambassadors in our last troubles a man was arrested at the barriers and the packet of which he was the bearer sent to the hotel de ville it was a dispatch from monsieur de lohenhelm to the king of sweden monsieur bode sent back the dispatch unopened to the swedish legation lord stuart's correspondence fell into the hands of the popular leaders and was similarly returned without being opened which did wonders in london lord stuart like all his fellow-countrymen adored disorder in foreign countries with him diplomacy was police duty dispatches reports he liked me well enough when i was foreign minister because i treated him without ceremony and because my door was always open to him he used to come to me at all hours in boots dirty with disordered dress after visiting the boulevards and the ladies whom he paid badly and who called him stuart i had conceived diplomacy on a new plan having nothing to conceal i spoke aloud i would have shown my dispatches to the first comer because i had no project for the glory of france which i was not determined to accomplish in spite of all opposition i have said a hundred times to sir charles stuart laughing and i meant what i said do not pick a quarrel with me if you throw down the gauntlet to me i shall pick it up france has never made warn you with a proper understanding of your position that is why you have beaten us but don't rely on this lord stuart therefore beheld our troubles of july with all that good nature which rejoices over our misfortunes but the members of the diplomatic body hostile to the popular cause had more or less urged charles x in the direction of the ordinances and yet when they appeared the ambassadors did nothing to save the sovereign if monsieur pozzo di borgo showed some anxiety concerning a coup d'etat this was on behalf of neither the king nor the people two things are certain first the revolution attacked the treaties of the quadruple alliance the france of the bourbons formed part of that alliance the bourbons could not therefore be violently dispossessed without endangering the new political right of europe secondly in a monarchy the foreign legations are not accredited to the government but to the monarch the strict duty of those legations therefore was to gather round charles x and to attend on him so long as he remained on french soil is it not singular that the only ambassador to whom this idea occurred should have been the representative of bernadotte of a king who did not belong to the old families of sovereigns m de lohenhelm was on the point of bringing the baron de werther over to his opinion when m pozzo di borgo opposed a measure which credentials prescribed and honour demanded had the diplomatic body gone to st cloud charles x's position would have been different the partisans of the legitimacy in the elective chamber would have gained a strength which they lacked at first the fear of a war would have alarmed the working class the idea of preserving peace by keeping henry v would have drawn a considerable mass of the population over to the royal infant's party 
Monsieur Ponce de Borgo stood aloof so as not to compromise his securities on the boards or at his bankers, and especially not to expose his place. He played at five percent on the corpse of the Capetian legitimacy, a corpse which will communicate death to the other living kings. He will not fail some time hence to try, according to custom, to pass off this irreparable fault, due to personal interest, as a profound combination. Ambassadors left too long at the same court adopt the manners of the country in which they reside. Charmed to live in the midst of honours, no longer seeing things as they are, they are afraid of passing in their dispatches a truth which might bring about a change in their position. It is in fact a different thing to be Esterhazy, Werther, Pozzo in Vienna, Berlin, St. Petersburg, or to be their excellencies the ambassadors to the court of France. It has been said that M. Pozzo bore a grudge against Louis the Eighteenth and Charles X in the matter of the blue ribbon and the peerage. They were wrong not to satisfy him. He had rendered services to the Bourbons for hatred of his fellow-countryman Bonaparte. But if at Ghent he decided the question of the throne by provoking the sudden departure of Louis the Eighteenth for Paris, he can now boast that by preventing the diplomatic body from doing its duty in the days of July, he has helped to throw from the head of Charles X the crown which he assisted in placing on the brow of his brother. I have long been of opinion that diplomatic bodies, born in centuries subject to a different law of nations, are no longer in keeping with the new society. Public governments, easy communications, bring about that nowadays cabinets are in a position to treat direct or simply through the intermediary of their consular agents, whose numbers should be increased and their condition improved, for at this hour Europe is an industrial continent. Titled spies with exorbitant pretensions, who meddle with everything to give themselves an importance which they cannot retain, serve only to disturb the cabinets to which they are accredited, and to feed their masters with illusions. Charles X, on his side, was wrong not to invite the diplomatic body to join his court. But what he saw seemed to him a dream. He went from one surprise to the other. It was thus that he did not send for M. le Duc d'Orléans, for thinking himself in danger only from the side of the Republic, the risk of an usurpation never entered his thoughts. Charles X set out in the evening for Rambouillet with the princesses and M. le Duc de Bordeaux. The new role played by M. le Duc d'Orléans gave rise to the first ideas of abdication in the king's head. Monsieur le Dauphin remained with the rear-guard, but did not mix with the soldiers. At Trianon he ordered what remained of wine and food to be distributed among them. At a quarter-past eight in the evening, the different corps set forward. There the fidelity of the 5th Light Regiment expired. Instead of following the movement, it returned to Paris. Its colours were brought to Charles X, who refused to accept them, as he had refused to accept those of the 50th. The brigades were all confused, the several arms intermingled. The cavalry outpaced the infantry and halted separately. At midnight on the 31st of July, a stop was made at Trap. The Dauphin slept at a house at the back of the village. The next morning, the 1st of August, he started for Rambouillet, leaving the troops bivouacked at Trap. These broke up camp at 11. A few soldiers who had gone to buy bread in the hamlets were massacred. On its arrival at Rambouillet, the army was cantoned round the palace. During the night of the 1st of August, three regiments of heavy cavalry went back to their old garrisons. It is believed that General Bordesoul, commanding the heavy cavalry of the guard, had made his capitulation at Versailles. The second grenadiers also went off on the morning of the 2nd, after sending in its colours to the king. The Dauphin met these deserting grenadiers. They formed in a line to do honour to the prince and continued their road. Strange mixture of disloyalty and good manners. In this three days' revolution, no one betrayed any passion. Each acted according to the idea he had formed of his rights or his duties. The rights conquered, the duties fulfilled, no enmity and no affection remained. The one feared lest the rights should carry him too far the other lest the duties should exceed their limits. Perhaps it has only once happened, and perhaps it will never happen again, that a people stopped within reach of its victory, and that soldiers who had defended a king so long as he seemed to wish to fight returned their standards to him before abandoning him. The ordinances had released the people from its oath, the retreat on the field of battle, 
released the grenadier from his flag. Charles X retiring, the Republicans withdrawing, there was nothing to prevent the elected monarchy from moving forward. The provinces, always sheep-like and the slaves of Paris, at each movement of the telegraph and at each tricolor flag perched on the top of a diligence, shouted, Long live Philip! or The Revolution for ever! The opening of the session being fixed for the 3rd of August, the peers repaired to the Chamber of Deputies. I went there, for everything was as yet provisional. There another act of melodrama was performed. The throne remained empty, and the anti-king sat down beside it, as who should say the Lord Chancellor opening a session of the British Parliament in the Sovereign's absence. Philip spoke of the painful necessity in which he had found himself of accepting the Lieutenant-Generalship to save us all, of the revision of Article 14 of the Charter, of the feeling for liberty which he, Philip, bore in his heart, and which he was about to pour over us, together with peace over Europe, a hocus-pocus of speech and constitution, repeated at each phase of our history since the last half-century. But attention grew very lively when the Prince made the following declaration. Peers and Deputies, so soon as the two chambers are constituted, I will communicate to you the act of abdication of His Majesty King Charles X. By the same act, Louis-Antoine of France, the Dauphin, likewise renounces his rights. This act was placed in my hands at eleven o'clock last night, the 2nd of August. This morning I have ordered it to be deposited in the archives of the House of Peers and to be inserted in the official part of the Monitor. By a contemptible trick and a cowardly omission, the Duc d'Orléans here suppressed the name of Henry V, in whose favour the two kings had abdicated. If at that time every Frenchman could have been individually consulted, it is probable that the majority would have pronounced in favour of Henry V. Even a section of the Republicans would have accepted him, giving him Lafayette for a mentor. Had germ of the legitimacy remained in France, and the two old kings gone to end their days in Rome, none of the difficulties which surround an usurpation and render it suspicious to the various parties would have existed. The adoption of the younger branch of Bourbon was not only a danger, it was a political solecism. New France is republican. She does not want a king. At least she does not want a king of the old dynasty. A few years more, and we shall see what will become of our liberties, and what that peace will be which is to gladden the world. If we may judge of the future conduct of the new personage elected by what we know of his character, it is safe to presume that this prince will think that the only way to preserve his monarchy is by oppression at home and grovelling abroad. The real wrong done by Louis-Philippe is not that he accepted the crown, an act of ambition of which there are thousands of examples, and which attacks only a political institution. His true crime is that he was a faithless guardian, that he robbed the child and the orphan, a crime for which the scriptures do not contain enough curses. Now moral justice, let who will call it fatality or providence, I call it the inevitable consequences of evil-doing, has never failed to punish the infractions of moral law. Philip, his government, all that order of impossible and contradictory things will perish, within a period more or less delayed by fortuitous circumstances, by complications of internal and external interests, by the apathy and corruption of individuals, by the levity of men's minds, the indifference and effacement of their characters, but, whatever the duration of the present system may be, it will never be long enough for the Orléans branch to take deep root. Charles X, apprised of the progress of the revolution, possessing nothing in his age or his character fitted to stem that progress, thought that he was warding off the blow struck at his house by abdicating together with his son, as Philip announced to the deputies. On the 1st of August he wrote a line approving of the opening of the session, and counting on the sincere attachment of his cousin the Duc d'Orléans, he in his turn appointed him Lieutenant-General of the Kingdom. He went further on the 2nd, for he wanted nothing more than to take ship, and he asked for commissaries to protect him as far as Cherbourg. These apparatus were not at once received by the military household. Bonaparte also had commissaries as guards, the first time Russian, the second French, but he had not asked for them. Here is Charles X's letter. Rambouillet, 
2nd August 1830. Cousin, I am too deeply distressed at the evils with which my people are afflicted and threatened, not to seek the means of removing them. I have therefore resolved to abdicate the crown in favour of my grandson, the Duc de Bordeaux. The Dauphin, who shares my sentiments, also renounces his rights in favour of his nephew. You will therefore, in your capacity of Lieutenant-General of the Kingdom, cause the accession of Henry V to the crown to be proclaimed. You will take all the other measures which concern you for regulating the forms of government during the minority of the new king. I here confine myself to the communication of these arrangements as the means of avoiding yet many more evils. You will communicate my intentions to the diplomatic body, and you will take the earliest opportunity of making known to me the proclamation by which my grandson is recognised as king under the title of Henry V. I renew to you, cousin, the assurance of the sentiments with which I am, your affectionate cousin, Charles. If Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans had been capable of emotion or remorse, would not this signature, your affectionate cousin, have struck him to the heart? So little doubt had they at Rambouillet of the efficacy of the abdications that the young prince was being made ready for his journey. His aegis, the tricolor cockade, was already fashioned by the hands of the most zealous promoters of the ordinances. Suppose that Madame la Duchesse de Berry had suddenly set out with her son and appeared in the Chamber of Deputies at the moment when Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans was delivering his opening speech. Two chances remained. Dangerous chances, but at least the child removed to heaven would not have dragged out days of misery on foreign soil. My counsels, my prayers, my cries were powerless. I asked in vain for Marie Caroline, the mother of Bayard, as he was preparing to quit the paternal castle, wept, says the loyal servitor. The good gentlewoman came out from the back of the tower and sent for her son, to whom she spake these words. Pierre, my friend, be sweet and courteous, putting from you all pride. Be humble and serviceable to all men. Be loyal in deeds and words. Be helpful to poor widows and orphans, and God will recompense you. Then the good lady drew out of her sleeve a little purse, in which were only six crowns in gold, and one in small silver, the which she gave to her son. The knight, without fear and without reproach, rode away with six golden crowns in a little purse, to become the bravest and most renowned of captains. Henry, who perhaps has not six gold crowns, will have very different combats to wage. He will have to fight misfortune, a difficult champion to throw. Let us glorify the mothers who give such tender and good lessons to their sons. Blessed then be you, my mother, from whom I derive all that may have honoured and disciplined my life. Forgive me for all these recollections, but perhaps the tyranny of my memory, by introducing the past into the present, takes from the latter a part of its wretchedness. The three commissaries deputed to Charles X were Messieurs de Chernon, Odilon Barreau, and Marshal Maison. They were sent back by the military posts and started to return to Paris. A wave of the populace carried them back to Rambouillet. End of Book 15, Part 1